Addiction plays hardball. He would hit me with these verbal attacks. I just said to him, I love you so much. You're such an amazing person. I can't take this ride anymore. It was the fact that dad made that sentiment and broke down. And years later, he told me it had a huge impact on him. Sometimes doing what's right for your loved one is the hardest thing to do. Karen is that right thing. Visit CARON.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey kids, it's Danny Tamborelli, also known as Little Pete from the Adventures of Pete and Pete. And this is Michael C. Morona, a.k.a. Big Pete from the same show. And uh, my name is Jeremy. I produce this podcast, The Adventures of Danny and Mike, on the Last Podcast Network. Hey, JB, can you tell them what it's all about? The Adventures of Danny and Mike is a weekly podcast with equal parts nostalgia, comedy, and surprises. That's right. So check us out on The Last Podcast Network. The Last Podcast, podcast Network. Hey everybody, it is your perfectionist with a strict attention to detail bruiser, Holden McNeely. And it is I, your distant, almost robotic, eyeballed, kind of above and beyond, (laughs) witnessing the world as it truly is, bruiser, Jake. And today we've got... Movie signs with the Mads. We've got movie signs with the Mads. We have movie signs with the Mads, everybody. So yeah. let me introduce our guests, Frank Conniff, Trace Bellew, uh, who you may know from uh, Mystery Science Theater as the Mads, and Carolina Hidalgo. She's out there. I'm there. She's got, she's got she's she's a she's a serious. She's got. She podcasts all the time. Sure. She does tons of stuff. Yeah. Well, then you're pulling off this inter-podcast network uh, synergy amazing. (laughs) I'm not nervous. You're nervous. (laughs) No, it's important that on this geek-based podcast, we bring in uh, our experts to talk about... Stanley Kubrick. That's exactly right. The myth, the legend. Uh, And by the way, really quick, this is actually a Patreon-sponsored episode, so shout-outs to Alexander Ramick, uh, who had nothing to promote, just wanted us to do an episode about Stanley Kubrick. Thank you so much for your patronage. Let's get into it. Um, We're here today, like we said, to talk about Stanley Kubrick. Um, As you can tell, I am very excited uh, about this episode. (laughs) uh, I have never seen you this, like shaking with energy. So like okay, I disco- I discovered Kubrick. I want to say I want to say it was early high school. Do you guys remember uh, uh American Film Institute's top 100 films of all time sure. when that was like a big deal? Yeah. And Absolutely. And I remember watching it and really learning about a lot of films mm-hmm. uh, through that. And I remember just constantly being like, oh, my God, I have to see that. Oh, my God, I have to see that. And almost every single time, it was a Kubrick film. Mm-hmm. He had so many on that list. And um, so I really just dove into his work. I wrote a research paper about him in high school. Uh, I, I went as Alex for Halloween one year. <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> I was like, now, did you huge. have to handcraft the, uh, the crotch support? Porter, or was that like Dude, off was, the show? It, we went to a Michael's. We got like all the yeah. We like the, uh, sewing was involved for the only did, time. Did you have to learn singing in the rain? <laughs> in the rain. I just kept doing that all night. Uh, in the rain. And and Michael's has that giant phallus section, which is so handy for shopping. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. You got to go in after Christmas when it's on closeout. Yes, That's when you yeah. get the best crotch discounts. I need a larger one. <laughs> and by the way, the scene in Clockwork Orange where he goes into that record store, uh, which, by the way, has a 2001 yes. uh, soundtrack. Yeah, nice nod. And uh, he picks up those two sexy women and they go back to his room and have a three-way. I'm, I'm here to announce publicly, that's never happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> At least not that fast. You've yes. never been to a record store. That's huh? right. <laughs> never been. It was a comic book yeah. store and the women weren't that attractive, but damn it, they were affectionate. <laughs> and back then, all the fucking was vinyl. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I saw that scene. I was like, I can't wait to be an adult. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, I just I was uh, you know incredibly uh, influenced by his work. Um, I remember like saving up my the first DVD I got was actually the DVD set uh, with Life and uh. Pictures in it, and learning even more about him and just being so blown away. Also, by the way, before we dive any more into this, uh, perfect companion pieces for this episode: the movie Signs of the Mads episodes on Doctor Strangelove as well as The Shining and uh, you mm. did such a wonderful job uh, gushing about those so I wanted to ask you guys um, you know what's your relationship to Kubrick is he your uncle or do you just <laughs> like him <laughs> I don't know I think Frank has the best one because I know that you told me that if Frank saw uh, 2001 in the movie theaters in the movie theater yes I did I, yeah. I think that was the first That's Kubrick amazing. film I saw in a theater when it came out um, Wait, I, how old were you? Um, I was like um, uh, twelve, which okay, good. Just just to emphasize the point, I'm fucking old. <laughs> but, no, uh, no, no. And how high uh, were you? No, actually, though, now that I think of it, I was very high. But that's like a whole other thing. Back then, the weed no, was no, way actually, weaker. The first time I saw it, I wasn't high because I, I hadn't gotten into drugs yet. But it, it, it's one of those films that in the '70s it would always play like at midnight showings and. You know, uh, so I saw it a few more times in a movie theater as well. But but those times I was baked out of my mind. You know? <laughs> but I think actually be? when I remember now, I think I saw uh, Dr. Strangelove in a theater uh, before I saw that. A friend of mine and I, when we were kids and it wasn't in its first release, but it was a revi- it was a revival of it. You know, like night, not in 1964 when it came out, but maybe in 1966. I saw that, and um, that had an even more profound effect on me. But we talked about that on the uh, on the on the uh, Doctor Strange. See the other episodes (laughs) if you wanna. But and Trace, what about you? When was the first time you like watched a a Kubrick movie, or like you? I guess felt affected by one. Well, um, you know, I'm like Frank. I saw it in the theater. I was ten, and. Uh, you know, I grew up in the space age, so I had built every model kit I could get my hands on of Gemini and Mercury and Apollo. And so this movie was like, I thought it was made for me. I thought it was going to be another great, you know, spaceship movie. And I was, as a little kid, I, well, 10, uh, I was stunned. I mean, it's like, this isn't like a spaceship movie. This has got like ideas. Yes. And I was too young to know what ideas were, <laughs> uh, but I, I was obsessed with this movie and, you know, bought the soundtrack album. Mm-hmm. I think this was the first film. And then, then, then Dr. Strangelove. And that was, I love because it's a comedy. Yeah. Extremely dark. I don't think you can get darker than this as a comedy. The world ends. <laughs> I would say it's definitely my favorite black comedy of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah. Uh, that's that's what's so amazing with him with genre genre in general. I'd say Shining's my favorite horror. It's movie It's always of all a time. different genre each time. Mm-hmm. I think I think that's on purpose on his part. I think mm-hmm. he's not interested. Yeah. In, um, yeah. Repeating himself, and uh, it's amazing. Every film he does is a different uh, genre. You, you know, I think his first great film was uh, The Killing in 1956, yes. which is like one of the best caper crime movies ever. If if he had just wanted to do that for the rest of his life, you know, he, he could have just made great cape, you know, crime movies, but his he he immediately follows it with uh, Paths of Glory, which is like an anti-war screed. And and that's like one of the best anti-war movies, you know. Um, yeah, he, he just had that amazing curiosity to do a lot of different things. And Doing pa- research for this episode, I got spoiled for the ending to The Killing. Uh-huh. And I'm so upset because like <laughs> oh, if really? I got to be sitting in the theater for the mm-hmm. first time watching that like bombshell that just like... <laughs> That's cinem- a great ending. An exquisite yeah. fuck you. Does that make sense? <laughs> well, let me tell you the ending, really. He no! gets shot in the head by Don Corleone. <laughs> uh, okay, so this is why the age is important, because I feel like uh, talking to my friends, doing research, even my, my, my own experience, Stanley Kubrick is like the first movie you watch with idea. It's like baby's first cinema. Yes. Like every, I feel like every single person... Uh, watches like Disney movies, action movies, genre movies. And then the first time you sit down and watch a Kubrick movie and there's these like long silences and these beautiful (laughs) shots and these fucked up ideas about the state of the world. And from the ages of 12 to like 15, 
it just cracks your brain open. So my That's bu- so true. My buddy Ben and, uh, and I decided to watch 2001 together, and we're at the very end of the film, and, and you know, de- deathly silent, <laughs> and our minds are being blown. I just remember uh, his dad just walks in, who's very stern usually and very cold, and he just comes and he's just like, that represents the black specter of death. And <laughs> I like, just started saying all this crazy stuff, and we were like, what is happening yeah. right now? No, it doesn't. It represents a, like, if there's a book, there's a book, it's, it represents an alien. It's an, actually an alien intelligence. It's all about the meaninglessness of life that we have to create our own meaning. No, I, yeah. th- that's what Cooper it's, said. I don't know. Is that what I say? What I said is like the colors are looking uh, really cool in the with, movie. Without like without actually like going into the history of it, almost any twelve to fifteen year old, and I'm gonna I understand these movies were made for adults, but I'm gonna insist that this is the age you watch Kubrick movies. Yeah, I think that's a great point, and and I think for me, like Doctor Strangelove as a person interested in comedy from a very early age, that's kind of the moment where I went from, you know, thinking that uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world and the Russians are coming, the Russians are coming, we're the height of what comedy could be, to suddenly seeing this, and those are both great movies, but then seeing this and then seeing that comedy uh, could be about ideas, it could be satirical, it could make a point about the absurdity of life and um it, it had a it had a profound effect on the way i thought about it and and the way i've tried to practice writing comedy since then and how did you feel when you first saw porkies too <laughs> i i didn't the see same. porkies I'm, I'm sorry to say I didn't, I, you know what i haven't seen the first porkies either which oh, I've, heard, I've heard good things next about. episode I mean, on movie science it. it's no meatballs <laughs> <laughs> with bill murray i love meatballs uh, um, trace's friend is in porkies kim cattrall uh, yes that's right i you know I should watch that film again in her honor. <laughs> uh, and she she did a tweet recently where someone like said something disparaging about it, and she was like, "Fuck you! I had a great time doing that." Movie. <laughs> That's a great response. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite facts about Doctor Strangelove is actually that it was originally going to be a serious film, yes, uh, a crime thriller, a, a movie, a book called a Code Red, red. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, a red alert, red, red alert. alert. Yeah, red there alerts. was a, a straightforward um, thriller. And uh, and yeah, that's how he 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 set out to make a, a thriller. And then uh, the more he worked on it, the more he realized this is all so absurd. And that's when he brought uh, Terry Southern in, who mm-hmm. was one of the great satirical writers of his day. Yeah. And that's how it became like such a great comedy. Oh. And uh, especially with Peter Sellers, I yeah. mean, like he tried to get him to do like pretty much every single role. And Peter Sellers is like, I can't do everything. Yeah, he was supposed to do the Slim Pickens role. Right. Oh, wow. Exactly. Yeah, he was. And it makes sense within the kind of concept of the movie. It would have made sense to have Peter Sellers playing everything since he played three characters already. Yeah. But I think it's just a, one of those lucky breaks that it ended up being Slim Pickens. Well, luckily, he's so he's so great in it. Mm-hmm. That's man. If you're like an author and you found out that Kubrick was going to adapt your film, that's like the best and worst day of your life. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh boy, it's going to be a fantastic movie, and he's going to throw away everything I cared about. Well, I know that uh, Stephen King always had a problem with this. Yes. With the oh, of course. Movie, and um, and I, I think I pointed this out on our episode was that, you know, he ended up getting to make his version of it as a TV miniseries, incredibly faithful to the book. Stephen Weber, an acquaintance of mine, really great guy. Uh, he made it with with him, very faithful. Nobody remembers it. Yeah, I, no I, I do. I remember it. I actually I remember did because I did watch yeah. it. Yeah, we when all it, watched it. When it came it. out, because I was obsessed uh-huh. with the, you know Stephen King. But I just remember marveling at how wor- way worse it was than the yeah. original. And I think if you write a book or something, and Stanley Kubrick makes it into a movie, uh, an artist like that, you just got to be like. Go make your. Th- I did my thing. You go do your thing. You well, know. You know uh, that's the thing that Stanley Kubrick did all the time. Is like he used. He, you know, he would adapt a lot of things. And, yeah. Or like, for example, like Arthur C. Clarke with two thousand one. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. He was. They like, wrote it at the same time. Exactly. Yeah, they He's collaborated like, on it. Can you? Can we write a novel together first? Because yeah. that's what I'm kind of used to. Novelist Diane Johnson said this about Kubrick's uh, adapting things. Kubrick always said that it was better to adapt a book <laughs> rather than write an original screenplay, and that you should choose a work that isn't a masterpiece so you can improve it that's <laughs> that you know that's a great point and, and if you want to bring in the greatest example of that the, the Godfather you know mm. greatest movie ever the novel which which I haven't read the entire novel but I know that Mario Puzo who wrote the novel did not consider it a great novel he considered no. it a pulp 
book that he wrote <laughs> for money and they took this pulp novel and they made the greatest film ever from it's it. an airport book i've yeah, read exactly. it it's an airport yeah. book but oh. it's not that bad oh. also real quick i just want to timestamp 13 minutes and 45 seconds is how far we made it into the episode <laughs> before the godfather was mentioned Yay! <laughs> Everyone have a drink. And then everyone loved The Godfather so much that they hired Mario Puzo to make Superman, to write yeah. Superman. <laughs> he did, and he I thought I thought he did a great job with Superman. The uh, oh, so this is this is the other thing is the idea of like uh, these movies. You know, people crank out movies all the time. Even back then, mm -hmm. uh, you know, there was I guess there was you know new wave Germanic expression European stuff. Sure, but then Hollywood movies were a product, right? And Kubrick movies are like novels they take like years to come out they only come out yeah. came out when he wanted them to like finally be released and each one was had so he had so much control so much like granular control yeah that it really is like the work of a singular vision it albeit one who could command an army of assistants and interns yeah, to do had every a, tiny had a thing. mastery of all the aspects you know having started out he he was a photographer for look magazine yes and he um you know he just the whole uh, technique of filmmaking, I think, was was something that was really interesting to him. But he also had a had a knack uh, for storytelling. His only film that he kind of said, I don't consider it uh, a Stanley Kubrick film, is Spartacus, which is which is yes. also yeah. a really good film, though. It's really good. But that was his one film that was an assignment. He replaced Anthony Mann after they started filming. He had already worked for Kirk Douglas on uh, Paths of Glory, and Kirk Douglas, who was the producer of Spartacus hired him and that's the one that he didn't have absolute control over every second of it which is why he doesn't like it well, well you know the but funny it's still thing really is, good the funny thing is yeah. i was watching spartacus the other day uh -huh. and i replaced it with another movie uh -huh. halfway through so i totally understand what they were going through <laughs> i also love the fact that i found this out in doing research for this episode that uh kurt douglas was pissed that he didn't get the lead role in ben-hur and <laughs> so that's why he produced oh, and makes, put himself in uh, uh you I'm know make my own movie. sandals and swords that makes film. complete sense <laughs> That's, that's so funny. Uh, yeah. And and the cool thing about the uh, Spartacus, oh, I mean, the one cool thing is that it kind of was the beginning of the mm -hmm. end of the blacklist mm -hmm. because they hired mm -hmm. the writer who was blacklisted. Yeah, Dalton and, Trumbo. And they uh, and they put his name in, and they're yeah. like, you know what? Who gives a fuck? And Kurt Douglas did it, and he just didn't apologize to anyone. And right. that was the beginning of the end. The beginning and, of the end of the blacklist. And uh, JFK, you know, as we all know, he mm -hmm. went in to go see the movie. He crossed right. lines to go see that movie, and that's what made it like. Yeah. Acceptable. Yeah, Thank and God it's very that. well um, dramatized in the movie Trumbo with Brian Cranston. Mm. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that. Oh, you haven't seen it? Oh, yeah. you'll love it. You got to see it. I've seen Stanley Kubrick movies all week. <laughs> 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 well, yeah, you almost uh, drove yourself insane researching Stanley Kubrick at one point. Yeah, it's called uh, Kubricking myself. Is <laughs> <laughs> when you don't eat and you don't sleep and you just watch Kubrick movies. <laughs> so it's like you were working for him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. For an entire month, you could only see with one point perspective. Center framed in the shot. It was a split slit scan, actually. It was really weird. Lots he of was, colors. He was so methodical that, like, when he went to an ATM, he insisted on multiple takes from the camera. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some say it was actually with the film um, Barry Lyndon that he really started tripling, quadrupling down on his perfectionism with an insane amount of takes, and uh -huh. that was compounded even more with The Shining, of course. He was known for demanding upwards of 70 to 80 yeah. takes. He almost killed uh, Shelley Duvall. She showed yeah. him a clump of her hair uh, yeah. that had fallen out during the filming, and some say, and I wanted to ask you guys about this, because I go back and forth. I think mm. it's like one of the more disparaging parts of the mm. Kubrick story is his relationship with Shelley Duvall, and mm. I feel like it's kind of tragically sad. And do you think that he... Just didn't get along with her more so than the other idea that he was just such this amazing auteur director that he was trying to put her in this mental state that he was trying to get yeah. out of her as a performer. I, Do you I think, think that's what it was? I think that's it. And and the thing about Shelley Duvall, who was who was wonderful, um, but she was never a trained actress. She was literally someone that Robert Altman saw, and he loved the way she looks. And he put her in, I think it was Brewster McCloud was the first one, and then he put her she in... She was in a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, well, yes. that came later, though, but Robert Altman was the one who put her in uh, Thieves Like Us. All of, well, A lot of Robert Altman's great early 70s movies, and she was just a natural on screen, and but, but not a trained actress. So I think for her to go from someone like Robert Altman, who's like 
kind of devil may care, like smoking pot all the time. Hey, that take is great, whatever, fine. You know, had a whole different approach to filmmaking from Stanley Kubrick. He made like two films a year for a while, Altman. To go from that to uh, Stanley Kubrick, I think, was probably really just an amazing ordeal for her. You know? Oh, absolutely. And Kubrick, so- I think, just felt since she wasn't a trained actress, he had to manipulate her mind and do whatever he could to bring out the performance. He would that he, wanted. he would isolate her. Yeah. He would scream. He would berate her. Mm. She did that baseball bat scene a hundred and twenty seven times. Uh, yeah. What was her batting average? <laughs> 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 All the while carrying stupid uh, Danny in her arms, and that kid looks heavy. Yeah. Uh, oh no! So this is the thing. I was thinking about this because you can't talk about Kubrick without mentioning the how he broke a grown woman, um, <laughs> and. <laughs> The thing is, is The Shining came out in 1980. Do you know what else came out in 1980? Friday the 13th. Oh, Oh, a lot of movies now that I asked the question. Apparently other things happened in 1980. (laughs) And the thing that unites, because we've covered a lot of Uh horror movies uh, in this Mm. show. Uh The one thing that unites every horror movie is that it's about a director who finds a woman who like they just love her look and then forces her to scream in agony and like right. to get because the entire crux of and any hurt themselves movie, like in The yeah, Exorcist. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh breaking God. The ri- a horrifying, rib, right? horrifying hours, a million takes, mm-hmm. physically exhausting. Uh, because what is a horror movie about if not like the perverted thrill of seeing a woman scream in terror? <laughs> yeah, that's why I watch them. I mean, morally perverse, uh, not sexual. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, but it's, so like even so. Even cheap horror movies still do this. Like it's almost yeah. built into the genre that to have a slasher movie, to have a killer on the loose with a, with a damsel in distress, it's one of the most physically demanding things yeah, an actress can do. Yeah, I think it would do. be hard for any uh, actor to to just have that be uh, your thing. Is that you're terrified and screaming and running, and usually stuff. covered in dirt. Yeah, and yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, when, when it comes to that though, I do kind of feel like they cross and they move over, where like the man is the strong man, and the woman's the weakling, and then mm. they kind of meet in the middle, and then she moves up because she's the final girl, right? Right, like <laughs> Shelley Duvall was, and then he goes down. So it, in the end, it kind of like it, it's a balance. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I'd like to think that. <laughs> I, I want to justify my technically for the bear movies. is the final <laughs> <laughs> yeah the b- b- blowjob bear which I loved it. that's another Halloween costume of mine but no, the, I just oh, go really? every year now with the blowjob bear yeah yeah wow. people hate me at parties um, <laughs> don't you want to be the guy who's getting never we'll talk you just about wore a later. suit nobody knew who you were then you had to be like I was the guy who got the bear blowjob I, and I, it just wasn't worth all the I try to get blown by picnic baskets <laughs> am I right um I thought what one uh, funny that th- this is what Kubrick said about the multiple takes thing. Um, mm. It's invariably because the actors don't know their lines or don't know them well enough. An actor can only do one thing at a time, and when he learned his lines only well enough to say them while he's thinking about them, he will always have trouble as soon as he has to work on the emotions of the scene or find camera marks. So apparently, mm. it was actually more like, "Oh, you're too aware of the words you're speaking. We're going to do this about fifty right. more times." Until yeah. finally, you it is. Well, just... I think it's all just a question of of how a director gets what he wants. Yeah, or mm-hmm. she wants because I think we even we just talked about this. Um, I forget what director we were talking about. It does does multiple takes, but uh, Marty Brest. Uh, Marty Brest. Yeah. Oh, by the last, way, happens to be week. Trace's good friend, Marty. Yes, Brest. Trace's good friend, <laughs> Marty Trace Brest. Has so many good friends. He has so many friends. It's amazing. <laughs> but What's uh, that like? <laughs> you know, uh, Clint Eastwood does like two takes. Every movie he's done, he's never done more than two or three takes. And and that's hmm. just he knows what he wants and he knows how to get Robert Altman, who I just mentioned, he filmed he would he came out of television, he filmed very quickly, you know. And uh some uh, directors are like I think that the kind of uh ec- economy um where a director can film a movie for a year and do multiple takes, I think that happens rarer that's rare and rarer because I just don't think that um you can make that work um, financially. And I think with uh, Eyes Wide Shut, I think they came up with some kind of special thing where Tom Cruise de- de- deferred his salary or something so that they could do all the multiple takes that, that mm. Kubrick wanted. Mm-hmm. That's what happened in Eyes Wide Shut when yeah. Sidney Pollack came in to do his thing. And he was like, oh, I'm going to be in this hotel room. I'm going to do this for a few days. <laughs> and then like a month later, he's like, Stanley, <laughs> when can I, I go think, And I think the yeah. first scene, because he talks about it in Life in Pictures, is a great uh, Stanley Kubrick documentary. But they ta- he talks about how I think the first shot, it was only like a few mm. takes. Yeah. He was like, I don't know what everybody's complaining <laughs> yeah, about. Right. And then the next day, 
day uh, in that pool that, where they're playing pool, mm -hmm. and it was this one camera pans mm -hmm. sweep shot uh, of him just like walking up to the pool table and maybe saying like a line yeah. or two, and it just was. Days. I know the scene you're talking about with Sidney Pollack and Tom Cruise, and it might have taken a long time to film, but it took a much longer time to watch that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Went on for fucking ever. <laughs> uh, here's the part of the show where we complain about Eyes Wide Shut. I feel like back when I was especially a uh, Stanley Kubrick like super fan, uh -huh. I was much more of an Eyes Wide Shut defender, and now <laughs> I'm slowly... Um, it, it's like Kubrick's films get better and better every time you see them, except yeah. Eyes Wide Shut just gets a little well, you worse have every have, time you watch it. You, with Eyes Wide <laughs> Shut, the problem is you have to have the motivation to watch it. And, <laughs> you know, and I actually saw on, on some special that uh, Martin Scorsese, Trace's friend, Marty Scorsese. <laughs> no, I, but, uh, I um, love everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it was with Roger Ebert. This was like several years ago. And uh, um, it was really cool. I think that Martin Scorsese, like guest host, did uh, sneak previews in with uh, Roger Ebert. It was great, but Scorsese said they were talking about Eyes Wide Shut. Scorsese, you know, biggest Kubrick devotee, love yeah. Eyes Wide Shut. And he said, you know, uh, you know, after you've seen it three times, it, and I'm like, I'm not watching it three times. <laughs> it's like I always <laughs> say. Maybe the orgy scene. Yeah, yeah. Right. But that is one thing I do really love about his films that um, I actually, some of my favorites of his, I was kind of almost alienated by the first time I saw it, or uh, I didn't maybe quite just get it right. in certain ways. I mean, even 2001, I think it wasn't until my second, third, fourth mm -hmm. viewing that I was like, my God, this is a masterpiece. You know, I, I mean, know. Clockwork Orange, I didn't think I was ever going to watch that movie again after the first time I saw it because it was just very disturbing to me yeah. and has since become uh, another one of my favorite like yeah. black comedies. His films really do, uh, you do benefit by watching them yes. uh, se several times. You know, when The Shining came out, I remember... Um, there were a lot of like like hardcore horror fans that didn't like it, yeah. you know, because it didn't deliver those kind of dependable thrills. It was much more of a slow burn, I think. And but but it's the type of thing I think even the horror fans who at the time didn't like it now have seen it since, and and it's you know pretty much general consensus. It's, that it's like great. a top five yeah, of all yeah. best horror films, and the craziest thing about it is Stanley Kubrick is not a horror film director. Yeah. Which is why he transcends all genres. Right, he just like right. picks a thing, he works on it for four to five uh -huh. years, and he masters it. He's a chess master. He knows what yes. he's doing. Yes. Like yes. He works really, really hard, and everything he needs to do, he mm. wants to make it perfect. It's, it's, it is also a little financially based too, though. Mm -hmm. If you notice, The Shining comes right after Barry Lyndon, which was <laughs> not a financial success. Right. was this period piece that uh, I think is incredible. Mm -hmm. I love what you always say about it, Frank, is that it's the most entertaining, boring movie of all time. <laughs> and I say, and I've said this before, it's not that it's a boring movie, it's in the boring movie genre. I never thought I would like it. I do, I'm do. i not a big period uh, piece person uh, and I just couldn't believe just how beautiful the film yeah. is. I mean, that's kind of what keeps yeah. you... The Barry uh, Lyndon thing is like, oh yeah, the pacing is aggravating, but the lenses! My God, <laughs> the lenses! But I feel like when I watch it now, though, like I feel like I'm always... Uh, caught up in the, the like I'm always engaged with the story and it and I think that it the pace of it is just part it's like hypnotic you know yeah. you're just you're kind of suddenly you're back in this world this long forgotten world and it's um and it's fascinating and and I know you just mentioned about him being a chess but he would literally uh before he got his start he was he was one of those guys in Washington Square Park playing chess for quarters mm -hmm. uh to supplement his income while working at Look Magazine but he talked about how chess taught him patience uh -huh, and yeah. uh, I think you know Barry Lennon exhibits that perfectly but all of his films exhibit this unbelievable patience um mm -hmm. with these it teaches long the audience shots patience. yes yeah. honestly because I mean I before 2001, I would not. I, I don't think I would normally sit through something like that opening sequence uh, w with the apes. Like I don't. Mm. I, I don't. I feel like I would shut up, but because it was Kubrick, I was like, okay, I'm. I'm in. I'm gonna. Yeah. I'm gonna sit with. Well, this. I think Kubrick was very much all about pure cinema, you know, uh, especially with 2001, and he wanted it to have an effect on people that was, you know, closer to to music or to painting than to. Um, Yes. traditional uh, narrative uh, theatrical based storytelling and um, 
You know, if you were in a screenwriting class and you submitted that as your screenplay, like you'd probably get an F. <laughs> like they'd be like, "What is this? This is like 300 pages long and nothing happens." It's just you know, drawings. Of yeah, yeah. NASA spacecraft. You know, but a filmmaker, you know, he on his level, he just knows what he's doing. You know, and 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 in 2001, he was he knew what his he was doing to the extent that he was just way ahead of everybody. You know, in terms of what he knew the effect a film could have on people. Yeah, especially with the mixed reviews and people uh, shitting on him. My yeah. favorite is the walkouts at the premiere. 250 walkouts, uh, including Rock Hudson, who apparently was muttering, what is this bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I just read a biography of Rock Hudson, and uh, he could have used a hit at that point in his career. <laughs> he should have been nicer to Stanley Kubrick. This, that was the attitude that led him direct to McMillan and White. <laughs> by the way, this is a great show. <laughs> it is, but Actually, it happens to me but but that's, that has nothing to do with uh, his career floundering uh, um, Kubrick said about 2001 the most terrifying fact about the universe is not that it is hostile but that it is indifferent but if we can come to terms with this indifference and accept the challenges of life within the boundaries of death however mutable man may be able to make them our existence as a species can have genuine meaning and fulfillment however vast the darkness we must supply our own light and he talks a lot about how we need to create meaning because the world is completely meaningless which is mm -hmm. uh, a nightmare to confront right. and I think that is what he was uh, constantly doing with his films. And I think that's what a lot of people who, who make art and make entertainment is trying to do you're trying to find create some meaning out of the craziness of existence mm -hmm. you know? I mean that's it's almost every movie like they everything, did in Porky's um, <laughs> <laughs> Porky's is about man's search for boobs oh, yeah. <laughs> specifically through locker room people <laughs> which represents religion and in, in this essay I will no, um, so like I, every movie from Path, I'm just going to go down the line. Path of Glory, Doctor Strangelove, 2001, Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon. Like, it's all this very... Lolita. We haven't even mentioned Lolita. And we're not going <laughs> to. Uh, we probably will. Um, the, just this kind of, I guess, this Vonnegut-like detachment from the just presenting the evils of man, the weakness of man, uh, and like seeing the kind of just dark humor in the kind of just... The way that I guess institutions and mm. like whether it's the nuclear family in The Shining or the government in Doctor Strangelove or right. so many making me want to say so many quotes, <laughs> all these good quotes over here. But um, it's it's everything. It's just the absurdity, just the way that life's absurdity can be revealed and how disheartening it. Can he be. said this about Doctor Strangelove. My idea of doing it as a nightmare comedy came in the early weeks of working on the screenplay. I found that in trying to put meat on the bones and to imagine the scenes fully, one had to keep leaving out of it things. Which were either absurd or paradoxical In order to keep it from being funny And these things seem to be close to the heart Of the scenes in question mm. So he could not avoid making it a comedy apparently. Yeah. It I mean he didn't so have ridiculous. to name the character Like Colonel Bat Guano or whatever <laughs> like, I love that, that he was... did that I, And I love that Sterling Jack Hayden Rim. Jack, Jack D. D. Ripper yeah. I love that And I love how he, yeah. he kind of conned uh, uh, George uh, C. Scott into like just You know amping up his performance so much yeah, yeah. Where George C. Scott was like well fuck you Stand, <laughs> you know that was great. Yeah, but yeah. no, you you guys are right. What you were saying before is just like because of his maybe his background in photography, like it mm -hmm. it, it looks like a painting, it looks like mm -hmm. a photograph. It's, right, it's a right. it's a work of art. Especially yeah. Barry Lyndon, where they really actually made an attempt to make it look like Victorian paintings with the natural right. candlelit scenes. They use natural lighting. He did, you know, there's mm. the story, of course, of him getting the lens from NASA and getting mm. a camera rented from uh, the Warner well, Brothers he, studio he lot. He used that lens when he did the moon landing, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh, when oh, he by the, the way, moon landing. Uh, I think Trace was a DP on that one. <laughs> yes, uh, that was shot on a soundstage on the moon, not <laughs> <laughs> the trick was to actually go to the moon so that the Russians would know that, like, we weren't faking it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Trace, what about like what are what are like the what are the Kubrick movies that like wiggled its way into your soul and never Ew. let go? <laughs> uh, well, you know the ones we've talked about. The other one I, I really like half of it, uh, but the other half is warming to me. Yes. Is Full Metal Jacket? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, the buddy. The first half is so powerful. And 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 so unique, and that performance by uh, Arlie Ermey, which he won. That he he beat. That that was cast with another actor. 
Yeah. And then uh, Arlie Ermey um, showed Kubrick what he could do. I, I love that movie. It owes a lot to a film called The D.I. with uh, Jack Webb. But then the second half of that film, I don't like as much. Uh, mm-hmm. um, I guess because I like being yelled at uh, in my underwear. <laughs> Your Midwestern roots are showing again, Trace. which which and sounds like it was brutal. By the way, it's almost like it's two films, you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's like yeah, exactly. Two, two. And it also was like it it kind of came out too late in the whole Vietnam uh, film genre for me. You know, yeah, we'd but seen so many of those ideas in like Hamburger Hill and Apocalypse Now and. All that stuff. However, though, it. when when I saw it, it again years later, uh, Full Metal Jacket, and I I like the whole film, but when I saw it years when I saw it like during the Iraq War, I'm saying that mm. like the Iraq War ended, it's still going on, <laughs> but uh, when uh, you know when all of that was happening during the Bush administration, it just suddenly had this incredible prescience, you know. Um, the attitudes that it was expressing were, were so um, on the money, you know. And um, I love, I love the end of uh, Full Metal Jacket when they're all like running in formation and, and singing the Mickey Mouse <laughs> yes. theme song, and it just to me is so indicative of uh, such a great metaphor, whatever, of like how childish we all are, our our country is when it comes to war. It's, it Dr. brings Strange out the love. most. Yes, it brings out the well. most childish emotions among in adults. Absolutely, his you know? movies. I I don't know if you noticed this. I noticed this watching uh, The Killing this morning because uh, that's what I like to do with my cereal <laughs> yeah. time. But all his like dark uh, climax scenes have mm. upbeat music, like The Shining. Uh-huh. Oh yeah, uh, like we'll you know, like every again. Clockwork Orange. Yeah, yeah. At, at The Killing as well, like mm. uh, Mickey Mouse. It, just right. everything ends with like, isn't this horrible? <laughs> yeah. Let's sing. I know the uh, credits of um, Clockwork Orange is singing in the rain again. Yeah. Except yeah. that the Gene, the original the Gene original Kelly version. version. Well, Which... that's, a, that's a song that. Only, oh, I'm sorry. I... No, no, no. Please keep going. <laughs> We're just excited. You know, it's fun. <laughs> no, no. Uh, McDowell. He he said that like, he was like work. He was a young actor. He was an unknown almost. Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm yes. McDowell. Yeah. yeah. Did I say McDowell? No, no. But I I just wanted to clarify. That Thank you. I almost said. Andy McDowell. My God, <laughs> that would have been embarrassing. No, no, you're right. Mac- Malcolm McDowell, he was a young actor uh, doing a lot of stage, British guy. Kubrick and- discovers him through the film If. Um, yes. Yeah. If and oh, wow. Oh, and Oh, Lucky Man, which might have come a- I think that came after. Appar- apparently he uh, got a copy of If. Yeah, Threw If it was on. a really good film, too. He enters whatever scene it is where he enters uh, the first time. Uh, he pauses it. He said, can we watch that back a couple more uh, times? They watch it back a couple more times. He said, I think we found our Alex. Mm-hmm. And if he said he, don't, sp- he didn't think he would even do Clockwork Orange mm-hmm. if yeah. Malcolm McDowell had not said yes to do the part. Oh, if you need yeah, to he- terrify a British vice principal... You get Malcolm McDowell. (laughs) (laughs) Nothing better than that. But, like, the fact that, like, he went in there and they got into a very close relationship. Not Uh, just, like, working together, playing ping pong together. Doing everything together every day for months. Uh, And, you know, he asked him, like, you got to sing something. He's like, I only know one song by heart. There was something. Yeah, they were doing. It wasn't working what they were trying. Mm -hmm. And then he he said. He didn't know the words. And he just walked up to him. This rape scene needs something. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I don't know what. I, yeah, exactly, right? Mm, I can't and, put my finger on it. And I believe Kubrick walked up to Malcolm McDowell and just said, hey, can you sing? And he <laughs> said, yeah. And it was actually Malcolm McDowell that started singing, singing in the rain. And then Kubrick immediately just like ran to the phone, got the rights. Uh-huh. And so it all happened very impromptu. Right. That's the interesting thing about, you know, here's Johnny from The Shining. That was an improvised moment from uh, from Nicholson, yeah. from Jack Nicholson. He actually did really, mm. for such a control freak, um, such an intense perfectionist. He really did let his actors play around a little yeah. bit and love sellers open. for that as well. He, well, he could get the rights to Here's Johnny. Originally, he said, it's Arsenio. <laughs> <laughs> and then he said, no, we got to do a different one. G.E. Smith <laughs> and the Saturday Night Live Band. <laughs> uh, that's a, that was another huge revelation doing this research was a lot of times when we cover directors with this clear of a vision, uh, it turns out that they basically have the entire movie laid out in storyboard yeah. format. Like they're basically just comic book artists that just happen to make their own adaptations. But uh, Kubrick just showed up on set and would just like goof around with the lens and like just get a feel for it on the spot, which was 
insane to me aside for like a few key moments that he knew what he wanted and i mean he even you know we talked about the nasa lens for the shining he actually all made altered the steady cam and what they called a steady cam had already been used but he created low mode for the steady cam which is essentially mm-hmm. just a way to get the steady cam as low to the ground as possible mm-hmm. using like this inverted pole i mean he he hands-on worked with the camera people and stuff to actually like lay the track for, for, I know. was just watching a documentary about Hal Ashby, and I think they said the first Steadicam shot was in uh, Bound for Glory, the movie he made with uh, about Woody Guthrie. Yes, in I believe you are correct yeah. on that. Yeah, yeah, I knew it was the Woody Guthrie film, uh-huh. but I didn't. I forgot what it was called. And we actually yeah, just yeah, did an episode covered... on Return of the Jedi, <laughs> and of course, it was very well known for its tracking shot as well. One of the early mm. uses of the Steadicam. Yeah, but when it came time for Sam Raimi to make a Steadicam, you know what he used? A two by four. <laughs> he just literally uh. nailed the camera to a two by four, and that was the Steadicam. That's right. We also covered it in the show. Man, we've talked about the Steadicam a lot on this show. Mm. Fuck off, Dolly Tracks. There's a new dog in the house. <laughs> um, and always, he was always really big into the Dolly shots. Um, I believe it's Max Ophuls, uh was oh. known very well for, oh, and for he was incredibly inspired by like that. Yeah. Max Ophuls. Uh He did uh, just under 30 films, most notably La Ronde, Le Plaisir. I'm butchering. I'm going to butcher these titles. Le Plaisir. The Earrings of Madame De and Lola Montes. And I got to, mm. you know, just doing research for this, I, I watched some of those uh, clips from some of those films. And I've it seen is all beautiful. of those films. And, yeah. and they're, they're really good, but I, they didn't, like, really have a big impact on me. And the reason I watched them is because I've read many critics talk about those films as, as that they're, like, the greatest films ever made. And... Hmm. Uh, and I've watched them, but but I think I need to watch them more because um, I I've seen them, but I can't. They, I you can't might bring, get you might I just can't get bring them to mine. Yeah, 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 you'll just like it yeah. more and more every time. Yeah, uh, yeah. He was very inspired by just the specific camera work in those films. Mm-hmm. He was also very inspired by director uh, Elia Kazan. Oh, that's interesting because yeah. they're very different kinds of directors. Yeah, he said uh, he referred to Elia Kazan as without question the best director. We have it in America and capable of performing miracles with the actors he uses. Was mm. very inspired by just mm. the way that he w- apparently worked with actors mm. and treated them. And um, even though I feel like Stanley Kubrick treated his actors a little bit more like a slab of meat. Uh, and like um, Malcolm McDowell, uh, Elia Kazan sang, but that was in front of the House on Americans Committee. <laughs> <laughs> Roasted. <laughs> um, another another big inspiration was uh, he read a lot of film theory before he even touched uh-huh. a camera and was heavily influenced by the writings of Sergei Eisenstein, who is a sure. uh, Soviet director and film theorist. He was the pioneer in the practice of montage and certain editing practices that lead to a collision or a collage mm-hmm. of shots used to manipulate audience emotions and create film metaphors. Mm-hmm. And I think Kubrick was a master of that. Right. Uh, this is like the era of film theory where they were like, hey, you ever notice that if you show one thing and then cut to another thing, the audience will think right. they're related? <laughs> what the fuck is this crazy technology? <laughs> and in fact, the um, the Odessa step sequence in the battleship Potemkin is uh, considered the first mommy blog. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to pretend I know what that means. <laughs> So, yeah, where are we even at at this point? We've mm-hmm. talked about most of the films. We haven't talked about Lolita. Lolita's, Which is really good, too, I yeah. think. It's a great yeah. movie. It's well, it's actually one of my favorite Kubrick movies. It's really, uh, and it's um, just uh, Peter Sellers. Uh, well, James Mason, too. I mean, the cast is so amazing. You know what I always say about yeah. James Mason? Uh, what? Always, he looks like he's always too cocktails away from being hammered (laughs) the way he talks Uh i enjoy james mason a lot uh and peter sellers also being a quilty he was hilarious he did a lot of uh improvising on that set he did a great job i I know he got a cooper got a lot of flack for that for that movie because Mm. they're like well you know you're you're adapting a movie about a guy who who's seduced by a 12 year old girl so you make her 14 but actually she looks 17 i'm like what are you Complaining about, you know, it, it was yeah. like a lot of controversy. Well, it's a very, with that. yeah, it's a very um, 
you know, it's a tricky thing to make that film in that year. He uh, actually had to like pull down the movie in mm, in England, right? Mm. I believe because uh, like he was getting death threats yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah, it was. He he has gotten a lot of death threats in his yeah. life. Uh, by the way, he got them then. He got mm. them for Clockwork Orange, and yes. he also got death threats while filming uh, Barry Lyndon in Ireland during the Troubles. And oh. when they found out that there were a bunch of British soldiers in his mm. film, mm. Um, they went after him, and he actually had to escape on a ferry boat with his wife. And kid uh, under an assumed mm-hmm. alias back to England. Very wow. war of the worlds of him. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be remiss just to not like throw out that like you can have a dark comedy about a terrible person and have a weird experiment where what can a person do wrong and still make them empathetic. You don't have to put like heart sunglasses lollipop teen on the cover of the movie. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Um, yeah. I mean, for Lolita, you know, it's that's definitely like a crazy issue. Definitely one of his. I mean, this is the first time he's saying fuck off to the studio system essentially after Spartacus he makes a deal with Warner Brothers so that he has complete and utter control if you have like the Stanley Kubrick box set of DVDs mm. it starts at Lolita because that marks his right. uh, uh, you know transition into being a full on auteur without having any control issues and it's also the first film he works with Peter Sellers on and Peter Sellers ended up Claire Quilty ended up becoming this major role and he wasn't mm-hmm. as big of a part in the book I no, it's been no. forever since I've read Lolita. the book is and I'm gonna be one of those pretentious people now who says the book is is actually better than the movie the book is that's is, the is one time I would say the book yeah. might be better than the, the book film. is 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 one of my favorite books it's hilarious for one thing it's hilarious the prose in it is just really funny um I, I don't remember what I was going to say, except to point out that I like the book better. So I think I'm very smart. You put on your smart hat. I can see it. It looks good on you. Um, but yeah, with, with with going back to Peter Sellers, you know, th- th- this is the first time he's really like he. I believe had a quote from him saying. Um, that Peter Sellers was the only person he never knew, he ever knew that could truly improvise, um, that mm. he trusted to fully, fully improvise. Uh, he uh, would just point three cameras at Sellers and let mm. him go. He mm. said about Sellers, uh, Peter had the most responsive attitude of all the actors I've worked with to the things I think are funny. He was always at his best in dealing with the grotesque and horrifying ideas. His greatest gift was for the grisly, horrifying areas of humor that other actors wouldn't think playable at all. And I think that yeah. that really really is yeah. Kubrick had such a d- evil devilish <laughs> sense of humor that's even in you even find it in the shining I mean yeah you, yeah and, and I think too uh, um, <laughs> Scatman Crothers is the world's longest punchline <laughs> <laughs> yeah honestly yeah that's like one of the best uh, I, I love that part impeccable timing <laughs> yeah Peter Sellers performance in um, or his performances I should say in uh, Dr. Strangelove are very controlled, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, group leader Mandrake is just, it's hilarious because he plays him so straight. The same thing with the president, um, uh, Mufflin, Muffley or whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, he's like, Dimitri, yeah. how do you think I feel? <laughs> he plays him as this like middle of the road, like centrist, like douchebag guy. And, and he, he plays it completely straight. He plays uh, Mandrake completely straight, and it's hilarious. But then he, with uh, Dr. Strangelove himself, he gets to go crazy and just do all this uh, nutty stuff that I think very few directors would let an actor go that far, you know. For sure, for yeah. sure. Because, he, I mean, it was the American military. Like, it was uh, the post-war military. There was a fucking Nazi in the room yeah. all the time. Yeah. <laughs> it was only his hand, they say. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, and I think he was the only actor he would let uh, have that much freedom and, and yeah. on set. Mm-hmm. I, he's the only one he trusted in that mm-hmm. way. Other actors weren't so lucky. I love this uh, story from a New York Times article that I pulled. He made the veteran actor Adolf Aminjau do the same Adolf scene. Adolf Manju. Manju, I knew I was saying that wrong. <laughs> Terrible names on this podcast. Once again, I've revealed, I'm old. I know how to pronounce Adolf Manju. I, I know who Adolf Manju is. They, they, thanks to the Golden Back when they still name people Adolf. Um, uh, uh, I made him do the same scene 17 times. Kubrick did, however, uh-huh. uh, rather. Uh, that was my best reading, said Manju, mm-hmm. uh, announced. I think we can break for lunch now. Mm-hmm. It was well past the usual lunchtime, but Kubrick said he wanted another take. Uh, Minjao then went into an absolute fury in front of Douglas and the entire crew. He blasted off on what he claimed was Kubrick's dubious parentage and made several other unprintable references to Kubrick's relative greenness and the art of directing actors. Kubrick merely 
merely listened calmly, and after uh, he had spluttered into an uncomplimentary conclusion, said quietly, all right, Let's try the scene one more time. <laughs> With utter totally docility, uh, Min Zhao, uh, Manju uh, went back to work. Stanley instinctively knew what to do, Douglas says. Um, and yeah, that, I mean, and again, about his patience mm. and his, mm. and, and there's also the story about relaying the track. What, right. Which film was that for? Was that for uh, The Killing? Um, yes, that is for The Killing. When they did the scene with Sterling Hayden, walk, uh, Hayden walking through the uh, apartment. when Because uh, mm. the thing is like, no, you put the lens where I want you to put it. Mm. You put the camera where I want you to put it. And that's it. And then, so what happened is that he has like a huge confidence, even from the beginning. And a lot yes. of these people who had been working in the business for so yeah. long were like, who's this kid? He's like, you better and listen to me. And he was extremely or, young, too. I mean, when he did Paths of Glory, I think he hadn't, he wasn't quite 30. I yeah, don't think. he wasn't mm-hmm. even 30. You know, so you can imagine Adolf Manju, who's this great actor, but who goes back to the silent era and who, who, was kind of um, he was racist? in the very first uh, A Star Is Born. You know, he was the studio ah. head of that, and it was in a, a, a lot of great movies. And y- you could see how he would be like, "This is not professional," and and it's not what he was used to coming out of the studio system. This is something I've been thinking about: the fantasy of Kubrick, uh, of being like the son of a doctor, growing up in New York, like kind of like half-assing his way through school. like Hated dis- school. Dis- Terrible attendance. Discovering photography, get it, and which the photography kid is always weird, always a little bit distant, <laughs> always yeah. a little bit controlling, spends lots of time alone in a literal dark room. And then like just being that persnickety, that, uh, obsessed with control, that combative with everyone around him, literally seeing your own staff and actors as like chess combatants and just having complete and total clarity of vision and just being like, no, I'm doing what I'm going to do and it's going to be good. And then being actually good enough that people tolerate that shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the fucking fantasy. That's what every creative person mm. wants I, is I, to be able to just like, be like, fuck y'all, I'm doing my thing, and it's mm. going to be so good, you'll thank me for it. He, he was an artist first, and I think that was a great thing. I mean, he he, he was into jazz. I know you're yeah. a big jazz fan. And then mm. uh, he wanted to be a drummer, and then he decided to be a photographer because of his father. And then he went he went into movies because that was a, the next medium that he could use, just like David Lynch d- did as well. Cause, yeah. And Trace is also an artist as well. So like, he is. It, yeah, so like a very respected one. But I think also like the timing of his career was very... Uh, um, fortunate because, you know, like you said, in the 50s, he was into jazz. He was always very aware of like alternative culture that was going on in a very staid, um, conventional time in America. And shot it. With yeah, his camera. he was he was very aware of uh, I, I remember reading one person who said he was like a basically a hipster in the 50s. Like uh-huh. he was he was, you know, he was in he, the village. He was, he was into all, Yeah, he was into all the stuff that was really good then. And so. <laughs> I think in the 50s, he was able to um, develop his technique. And then when the 60s came along, when people were really ready for his sensibility, you know, it it was just kind of perfect timing for his career, I think. Yeah, I think he was he was uh, heavily inspired. So he's skipping school. He's going to see a lot of movies and stuff. Uh, And he gets heavily inspired by the photographer uh, who went under the pseudonym Ouija. Oh, sure. um, uh, Arthur Fellick. And his brother, Wario. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Known for his black and white street photography all throughout New York. Ouija did my dick pics. (laughs) (laughs) After a murder. I loved looking at both Ouija's and um, Kubrick's old photos. Uh, mm-hmm. that he did for Look Magazine. And it really is that it's just a perfect picture uh, in the life of these day-to-day Yeah, and I think, too, people. like in the um, for Kubrick to be aware uh, in the early 60s of Terry Southern because that was something mm. that only people who knew about stuff that was an alternate to the mainstream would be aware of Terry Southern back then. Yeah, well, you know, well, you know Kubrick was a scholar in ways where, where he didn't care about school, but he yeah. cared about like learning, absorbing yeah. everything he possibly could from any mm. avenue. Yeah, about school, he said, and I completely agree with him, I think the big mistake in schools is trying to teach children anything and by using fear as the basic motivation. Mm-hmm. Fear of getting failing grades, fear of not staying with your class, etc. Interest can produce learning on a scale compared to fear 
fear as a nuclear explosion to a firecracker. Okay, Montessori. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he... But, yeah, I mean, I kind of wish I had the balls to do what he did because I largely agree with him about my experience in high school. And and he was just that cool kid who said, fuck it, I'm not going. And he barely went and had a horrible uh, GPA and it didn't really seem to have... I had that exact same attitude. It was because I was an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say the similarities of me and Sonny Kubrick start and end there. (laughs) Frank was hustling checkers. It was not as lucrative. It was. Uh, I was uh, trying to win money playing Pong with people. And connect four, I believe. God, can we hold in? Can we do that one day? Just what? show up in the middle of Washington Square Park and just set up a connect four board. Ah, and just sit there. Yeah, yeah. No, shoots and ladders. <laughs> That's even better. There's no strategy. But uh, yeah, yeah. So, um, oh, one, one. Going back to, I, I've, I've been sitting on this. Ooh, I've been sitting on this juicy ooh. quote. We were talking about. Um, people being belabored working with with Kubrick but also the love of working with someone like that a true auteur um Michael Hare Hare Michael Hare who he he wrote um did he write this short no he wrote Dispatches one of the greatest Dispatches yeah one of the great I've Kubrick hired him to because work on uh Full Full Metal Metal Jack what would eventually become Full Metal Jack the 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 novel that Full Metal Jack was based on was called The Short Timers Yes. yes and I think I brought this up before the guy who wrote it Gustav uh, uh, Hasford was arrested for uh, unreturned library books. And <laughs> went to jail for unreturned library. That's like books. a punchline <laughs> in an old joke. You know what I mean? <laughs> you, you, you like like a, your prison mates are not going to believe you. you it's know? like a punchline, like an old Woody uh, Allen stand-up bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, Michael Hare said this about uh, working with. Kubrick. They work with Stanley and go through hells that nothing in their careers could have prepared them for. They think they must have been mad to get involved. They think that they'd die before they would ever work with him again. That fixated maniac. And when it's all behind them and the profound fatigue is so much in, uh, of so much intensity is worn off, they do anything in the world to work with them again. For the rest of their professional lives, they long to work with someone who cared the way Stanley did, someone they could learn from. They look for someone to respect the way they'd come to respect him, but they can never find anybody. I've heard this story so many times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that quote. That and is- the other uh, the other Michael Hurt credit we should mention is he wrote the narration in Apocalypse Now. He did. Yes. He did. He had just yeah. come off of that when Stanley mm-hmm. uh, Kubrick started working with you him. You mean actually. my inner thoughts. Um, and, and Dispatches, I believe, Leave, I think I'm thinking of the right book is like phenomenal. Yeah, that's a, that's a classic. Uh, that's a journal. That's a book of journalism, and it's a classic. Absolutely about, phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. Well, I think we're c- coming near an end. I, I <laughs> as this. opposed to that pool table scene in Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> Let's talk about Eyes Wide Shut some more. Huh? People, people be fucking up. Huh? Eyes Wide Shut, or as I like to call it, the AI of Stanley Kubrick movies. <laughs> you know, do you think that if he had stayed a lot, he of course he 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 uh, spends a long time in post production, puts together a cut, mm. he sends it to. Um, uh, Hanks and uh, Kidman and I believe uh, like no, the you mean Cruise. 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 What am I thinking of? Yeah, that'd been amazing. Oh my god, <laughs> yeah. that would be so much remake. better. Actually, <laughs> I want a remake so bad. Yeah, I says, think they're trying to fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and six days after he sends uh, that to them, he, he passes away in his sleep of a heart attack. Mm. Do you think if he had been able to continue to work on that film, that was obviously I don't believe that was a final cut, right? No, it wasn't. Yeah. I, I think, and and actually, seriously, I think stuff like that pool table scene might have been edited and might have been better. There were certain things in the film uh, that didn't feel right. Like, for instance, the whole thing. But... uh, but he might have been able to make it better. Make it better if he had, you know. If it was he had still lived. beautiful, beautifully shot. Yeah, film. yeah. Well, my uh, another favorite thing that we we haven't talked about too too much that I wanted to throw in there as uh, we we get near closes is, is how his... the Venetian mask orgy has become ingrained in popular culture <laughs> as just the default thing rich people do. I end. All, I try to end as uh, uh, as many sketches when I write sketch comedy. I try to end as many sketches as possible with. So what do you want to do now? Fuck. <laughs> um, but um. Uh, I love that he was so he was so afraid of flying. We haven't talked about any of his uh, fear of flying and stuff. And he literally had to recreate Greenwich Village in England. He had people not successfully. Yeah, he had people fly over and measure uh, street widths well, so he, that he could recreate it. And he, the best is Full Metal Jacket. I was gonna say he, he like you know flew in palm trees <laughs> in yeah. England. 
pounds but it, a tree. It, it works in Full Metal Jacket, I mm-hmm. think. Though. It actually like, does because it's think, like a weird nightmare that you're watching. I think you know? in the case of Eyes Wide Shut, I mean, not being able to go to uh, New York, I think, you know. But I don't know if it would have been any better. And plus, I don't know how Stanley Kubrick would thrive as a location filmmaker. I don't think there's a lot of locations in his films. I think they're mm-hmm. mostly yeah. built sets in contr- in worlds that he could control and and be on top of everything. Um, I think that was very important yeah. to him because, like, you know, what we were saying, like, he... Uh, he he was also afraid of flying, but he also like all his movies actually had something to do with something in his life, like being afraid of a nuclear fallout. Right, right. He actually wanted to move to Australia because he heard that was the safest place to go. Yes, I'm so yeah. glad you brought that fact Things up. Like that, that he was that afraid of nuclear war, less leading to his. You Is know, that because he saw love. the movie On the Beach, which mm. takes place in Australia <laughs> after a nuclear holocaust? <laughs> People, but seem they're fine. all waiting for the radioactivity to come and kill them though, in that movie. <laughs> but the movies uh-huh. that he's made, like it, it really kind of goes with what he's thinking at the time uh, like he did uh, uh, Space Odyssey he was like thinking like that was about the time like they're about to put a man on the moon right, so he's right. thinking in his head like is there extraterrestrial mm. life is there alien yeah. life out there uh, can I go to the moon and film this whole thing <laughs> I mean in a sound stage I mean <laughs> and so like I mean it is like not autobiographical in any way but at the same time he has thoughts in his head as time goes by as history goes by and I find that really really fucking yeah. awesome mm-hmm. that he does that without making it about himself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah he talks about uh, his uh, his approach to stories that he likes uh, uh, he said I've always enjoyed dealing with a slightly sur- surrealistic situation and presenting it in a realistic manner I've always liked fairy tales and myths magical stories I think they are somehow closer to the sense of reality one feels today than the equally stylized or quote unquote realistic story in which a great deal of selectivity and omission has to occur in order to preserve its realist style mm-hmm. um, which I thought was very interesting and yeah. I do get that everything is sort of dreamlike in his work even um, you know if it's as cold and difficult as war you know it yeah. still has this dreamlike quality the way that the just the way that landscape works um, you know in that final battle scene and just the just the way that they created this just it's just this night it just looks like hell on earth you yeah. know and yeah. this surreal way that's probably not authentic per se to like what those war scenes mm-hmm. maybe looked like it has a little bit of dreaminess to it um yeah yeah absolutely it, yeah they call it like a living nightmare like mm-hmm. all the things that Stanley Kubrick can bring up that's awful right <laughs> which is what we see now to this mm. day like when we watch these movies like I watched Space Odyssey like not that long ago uh. and also Dr. Strangelove also being a nightmare to this day like it just it feels very yeah. real it feels very today and that's what makes him uh, a master timeless like, artist Le- exactly. legitimately scary and you, you feel it more today You know, not to get too political but you feel it more today than any like a story about just you know wacko kind of ch- child men mm-hmm. in a room making all the decisions of right, the you right. know it, it's inc- I mean it's probably more relevant right now than it Absolutely. has been H2O um, man yeah, that was, that's a little, that's a little nun. Oh, now you're bringing up uh, that Halloween movie. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to say that uh, because of Stanley Kubrick, a lot of movies have come up, a lot of directors have come up because of him, and one of them being Interstellar. Thank God for Interstellar, Frank. Right? <laughs> no. <laughs> I well, mean, Christopher Nolan is one of those guys that people sometimes call the you know the new Stanley Kubrick. I'm not on board with that idea. I mean, in uh, horror films yeah. like uh, uh, beloved now uh, classics like Hereditary, you know. Yeah. I'm just kidding because I oh. heard the episode where you guys hated it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing though, the thing, but I, I did. Uh, by the way, Carolina, I also loved Hereditary, but I don't think I could ever watch it again. But but the it. thing about Kubrick though is he, I think he like Orson Welles. They're both people who inspired many people to become filmmakers. When people saw their films, people saw 2001 at an impressionable age. It inspired um, uh, people like Spielberg and, and Orson Welles inspired people like Truffaut and a million other people. Same thing with to become filmmakers. So in that sense, he you know, his influence is just even greater than just his individual films. Same mm-hmm. with James Cameron, not yeah. even as a director so much because he started out in, uh, you know, uh, practical effects. Right. And he saw Space Odyssey. He's like, wow, I've just been to space. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he finds th- that's the really awesome part about it. It's like mm-hmm. you watch uh, 2001 and you don't realize it's 1968. You yeah. don't realize, like, we haven't been to space. You and, look but at- I 
thought we were in space. You look at the year it's made, and it looks better mm-hmm. than I think uh, you know a lot of sci-fi films now. Mm-hmm. And again, you don't have Star Wars without 2001. No, I think. you yeah. don't. I mean, it, it, uh, George Lucas was very much part of that generation that was that 2001 had a profound influence. But I think um, the Lucas film that's just as influenced by 2001, maybe even more so, is THX uh-huh. because that's more of kind of the old kind of sci-fi where it's not exciting or kinetic or or has like a driving narrative it's more just kind of thoughtful and has and is kind of raising um you know themes and issues about life and but i think with star wars he just very successfully took what kubrick started and then like put it in a much more mainstream narrative uh, setting absolutely can i say one more thing though because i mean we've uh we talked about all the influences uh that the people have taken from Mm. stanley kubrick my favorite quote of stanley kubrick was it's the bad movies that made me become a director yeah (laughs) wow yeah so he was influenced by porkies Um, uh, yeah, and I wanted to leave us with this with this quote here about uh, his love of filmmaking. Um, Anyone who has ever been privileged to direct a film also knows that although it can be like trying to write a, a write war and peace in a bumper car at an amusement park, mm-hmm. when you finally get it right, there are not many joys in life that can equal the feeling. Um, I, I'm I sh- I'm sure. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank Movie you. Summer, thank the Mads. you. This yeah. was phenomenal. Can we Trace? do this again? Yeah. Hey, thank you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Frank and Carolina, of course. And please, everybody who listens to our podcast. I don't think there's any reason to have these guys back on our podcast that covers (laughs) the history of pop culture. Can't even think of a single one. (laughs) Um, Yeah, please. I would love to do this again. It was so, so much fun. And um, uh, what else was I going to say? Yeah, check out Movie Signs with the Mads. Yeah, uh, movie sign with the Mads. And, and also, check out uh, Wizard and the Bruiser. Wizard and the Bruiser. <laughs> I, and I, also, I thought I had to say that. Um, go to themadsareback.com for all. Trace, Trace and I have a lot of uh, live gigs, live movie riffing gigs. Yeah, they do, they do it live yeah. in yeah. front of like a screen. It's really funny. I've Pittsburgh seen a lot of them. Very soon. We're doing a very special show in Chicago with J. Elvis Weinstein and uh, Dave Gruber Allen. Josh. And. Uh, and we're gonna be in Flo- we're gonna be in Florida doing a special live riff. So check all that stuff out. Fantastic. Um, and of course, if uh, you want to check uh, us out, write a review for us on iTunes. It really helps a lot. Uh, also check out our Patreon if you want to support us more. Patreon.com forward slash Whizbrew. We do weekly bonus episodes uh, covering all sorts of different stuff. And um, also, you can follow me on Twitch.tv forward slash Holdenators Ho. You can follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young. And uh, hey. Keep on whizzing. And never stop bruising. <laughs> we got to come up with you a thing like a that. Tagline. <laughs> we did an entire bonus episode where we came up with the tagline. We just say thank you. <laughs> Sorry. Uh. Um, all right. Have a good one, everybody. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Hey, Mom. First things first, thank you. It's my one-year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.